Luke chapter 22, we've entitled the message this morning, After Blessings, Danger. After Blessings, Danger. Just let's unite our heart together and we were to prayer as we come to this passage and the preaching of God's word. Lord, we do thank thee for help given already this morning. We bless thee, Lord, for the good singing. And, O oh God, we thank thee, Lord, for the truth of that hymn we have just been considering. That we have the great high priest in glory who maketh intercession for his people. And, Lord, we rejoice that Christ liveth in the power of an endless life this morning. Thank you, Lord, we haven't been preaching a dead Savior to men and women in the tent Lord, we thank Thee that Thou art alive forevermore. And Lord, what a comfort, what a blessing it is, even to the people of God. Praying, Lord, that Thou would bless us as we come to this passage. Give us understanding. Give us that little word that we need in season, even this morning. And I pray, Lord, that Thou would brood over this gathering with the power of Thy Spirit. And Thou would fill me with the Spirit of God, that I might preach as thus. And thus saith the Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be on your guard. Because after you have had a rich time of spiritual blessing, often it's then the devil fires the fiery darts. It might be that you could describe in a summary that, uh, that of our gospel mission that I was about to conclude. It's been a time of rich blessing to our hearts. But men and women, it's all the more reason why we need to be on our guard. And I want you to see that even in the various places in God's Word. You think of Elijah today. And you think of how Elijah had that great victory on Mount Carmel. And how he took the false prophets of Baal and he slew them at Kishon. And yet the very next verses we read of him running for his life in fear of the threats of a woman. That woman being Jezebel. One of the most wickedest women in all the Bible. You think of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was baptized by John the Baptist in the river Jordan at that time where the Spirit was seen to descend upon Christ in the form of a dove. The Father's voice was heard from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet the very next words declare that he, that is Christ, was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And in this chapter of Luke's Gospel 22, there's much made of the devil here, much mention of the devil. He's found to be in the temple because there Judas made the arrangements with the high priests for a sum of money to betray the Lord of glory. He's found in the Garden of Gethsemane because there the soldiers came and they were to arrest Christ himself. And the Lord could say in verse 53 of this chapter, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And what occurs at the end of the chapter is also because the devil was at work even in the upper room. Even in the upper room. Understand the devil is not all powerful. Oh yes, we can say we're no match for this great adversary. But he does not have unlimited power. He does not have unlimited authority. He has to obey the limits that are set by the Lord. And surely that note it can be seen in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. He says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, 
who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. You will not face a trial or temptation that you are not able to overcome. Because, you see, God limits how much the devil can do. The disciples had known great blessing this evening with the Lord. They had partaken with the Savior in this final feast. And yet the devil's there. They're even discussing who of us is the greatest. Great blessing with the Lord. But unknown to them was the great danger that was imminent. And one in particular. And that one, of course, is Peter, which brings us to the verses that I want to, to consider with me this morning. Verse 31 and 32, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan had desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. These verses remind us what the work of the devil is about. And but for the work of Christ, every one of God's people would be capable of doing what Peter did, and even worse. Let's take a look at this. After blessings, danger. You'll notice the intention of Satan here. The activity, the personality of the devil is something that's not really considered by the child of God as we ought to consider it. He's not some figurative person with a few horns sticking out of his head, as you'll see in the children's picture books. He's real. And of course, when you're born again, you're saved, you become aware of that more than ever. And he's against the people of God. And one who is the cause of sin in this world by tempting Eve, one whom the Lord himself calls the prince of, the, of this power of the air, a prince of this world, one who's called a murderer and a liar from the beginning in the scriptures. It is the devil who's described as the accuser of the brethren, the one who busily is seeking to frustrate the work of God and to cause havoc in the church of Jesus Christ. He's engaged in catching away immediately the good seed of the word, even as it is preached in this very house because he's likened to the birds of the air that cometh immediately. He knows the power that's in the word of God. He knows the power that's in prayer. That's why he seeks to prevent the people of God from getting to the prayer meetings. Men and women, he's real. He sows tares among the church of Jesus Christ. The believer has an enemy in this world and an enemy in the flesh. Both of those are a snare and a burden but none as like as, or as dangerous as the restless, the invisible, the experienced enemy that is the devil. Do you see what his desire is? It's gleaned from the words that we read in, the, in verse 31. That the Lord said to Simon, Behold, Simon, give attention to this. Get a, get a hold of this. Satan hath desired to have you. There's something sinister about that. There's something awful about those very words. The devil's desires desires often that he would cause the ruin of the child of God. And all without us knowing anything of his doings or of his way. I say us. Because when we read the words again, Satan have desired to have you. 
There's a word that's in the plural. There's the beauty, men and women, of the authorized version. That's why we don't go to the New King James or the NIV or something to the rest of them. Because it doesn't bring out those vowels or those uh, tenses. That's plural. And so while these words were spoken to Peter, and he's paramount, he's foremost here, yet the Lord was speaking of something which was true of the rest of the disciples in the upper, upper room as well. And Satan desired that he might have them under his power, and by inference, that's the same intention that he has against you and me as well. It's you, it's plural. What he sought to do with Job in the Old Testament is what he desired for these and what he desires for each of God's people. But while that is his desire, there's also the truth that without the permission of the sovereign God, he can do nothing. Will you turn back to Job for me? I want you to see it as it is here in black and white because here the devil has to seek permission. Job chapter 1 verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. The devil knew that Job had a protection around him. The devil had a limit. He couldn't touch him. But he's asking the Lord, Does he fear God for naught? Is it not because you have blessed him so well? Verse 11, but put forth thine hand now, touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. There's the challenge. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 2, look over chapter 2, verse 4. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So, chapter 1, he seeks permission to touch even what he has. And you, of course, know the background. He lost all his children the one day, lost his businesses, his animals, all in the one day. But he didn't curse God. Satan comes back again, chapter 2. Oh now, Lord, uh, put their hand upon, withdraw thy hand in a sense from his flesh. You see, he has to get permission. He could do all those things, but he couldn't take his life from him. He could leave his flesh marred from top to bottom, sitting on a dunghill of the city, boils from the top of his head to the sole of his foot, but he couldn't take his life. And as he had to get leave to have the goods and even the body of Job in his hand, so in Luke chapter 22, he had no evil intent upon these disciples. He wants an opportunity to have them in his hand. And the sense is that in some manner he would come before God demanding that he might have the disciples. He already had entered into Judas. Judas was away doing his evil work of betraying the Lord of glory for that sum of money. But not content with one, he sought to have the rest of them. 
And what he desired for them is what he desires to do for each of God's people. For he goes about seeking whom he may devour. But notice the desire of Satan is described here in the Savior's words. Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. That's a very apt illustration or description of what the devil would do with the disciples. He would lay hold upon them. And maybe the farmers today, well, we just haven't to be as manually orientated as it would have been generations ago. And you can go to shows now and you see the thrashers in action and all is handballed into the thing and all of the rest of it had to be built stooks and all the rest in the fields. And young people are looking at me and saying, I haven't a clue what you're talking about because that's years ago. But a lot of manual work was done years ago. Now the machinery does it. But the wheat had to be taken. And the wheat was shaken. And it was tossed to and fro. Just uh, like wheat would be as it sieved and as winnowed. So as to separate it from the chaff. There's the rubbish part. And that thrashing would take place in the, usually in the scripture times upon the top of a hill. Because the wind would carry the chaff away. The good grain is full of body. It falls to the ground. Gideon, you remember him, he thrashed the wheat. Satan desired that they would be shaken. So shaken that they would be nothing left but the chaff. They would all just look like counterfeits. They would all end up looking like false professors. Just like Judas was because the root of the matter was never in his heart. He was never saved. And he would sift them by scattering them from Christ and from one another. And he would fill them with doubts about Jesus being the Messiah and the Redeemer that should come. And he would be frightening them with the fears of enemies and of death. Is that not what the devil is about? Even with the people of God are concerned today. And if he could sift these disciples and if he could leave them like chaff, you know what? He would succeed in attacking the person of Christ himself. And you might say to me, how do you work that out? Well, it's Christ who chose these men. It's Christ who sent out these men with the message of the gospel, ordaining them to preach it. It was the Lord who would send them out to evangelize the world. And should the devil cause the disciples to be sifted so that they look just like false professors, then he would succeed in attacking the very integrity of the Savior himself. For understand from verse 32 that the intention and the direction of Satan's attack is upon the faith of the people of God. But I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. I want to stop there just for now. That thy faith fail not. It's the devil's desire to weaken the faith of the disciples of Christ. To shake our faith. To agitate them that they are left floundering in doubts. Our saving faith, men and women, has a resting place. It's not in a church. It's not in a set of rules. It's in a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. If you haven't got saving faith in Christ, you're not saved. But he goes, he says here in Acts 20 verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God. That's turning from sin and faith toward 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Saving faith is only in Christ. It's resting in all that the Savior has done for us. It's trusting in Him, who Peter goes on to write about. 1 Peter 1 and 8, he says, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Men and women, it is our faith that causes us to live the Christian life. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 should be really underlined in your Bible. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, and who gave himself for me. Is our is our faith in Christ this morning? You've got to answer that before God. Is our faith that the fiery darts of the wicked one are aimed at? I wonder, do you recognize that? You see, this is what the accuser of the brethren is all about. It is to shake us. It is to shake our faith. Just the way that the wheat will be put through the sieve. But notice, not only the intent of, the, of, the Satan, of Satan, the devil, but notice the intercession of the Savior. We've considered something of the might of the devil this morning, and we must recognize that we're no match for him. And you know, Peter was to become aware of that by this warning from the Lord. Simon, Simon. It's his old name, of course. Behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. He has demanded to have you. He's demanded to have the rest of the disciples that he may sift you all as wheat. Wherein then lay hope for Peter against such an attack. It was only in the intercession of Christ. Verse 32. But, there's the great change of tone. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Notice that although the devil demanded to have all the disciples in his hand, so that by temptation and trial their faith would be shaken to the very bone, yet the butt of Satan's attack would be permitted to be against Peter. You might say, where do you see that? You've already told us in verse 30 that the word you is plural. But you see, it's not you when you get into verse 32. He says, but I have prayed for thee. That's singular. That's why one of the reasons why we love the authorized version. The authors have been honest with us. And there's a wee help for the young people and children and adults alike. Where you see the word beginning with why, you, yours, that's plural. Where you see the word beginning with T, thee, thou, that's singular. Singular. Peter, I prayed for thee. Thee, you. You in particular. Oh, he prayed for all the apostles. But particularly for Peter because he was in the greatest danger. It was Peter who would most violently be assaulted. Yet the encouragement was that he was receiving here was that the Lord had prayed for him. 
He had interceded particularly for him. And consider the power of Christ praying. That's gleaned from the words that we've touched on already regarding the faith of Peter. It was his faith that was in the devil's sights. When you get the rifle out and you're out shooting for rabbits or shooting for something, pigeons, you look through the sight. Some of us are better shoot, shoot, shoot. No, that's not a word. Some of us are better at shooting than others. But Peter was in the sight of, of Satan. He's right there. And of course the Lord being on this end, he knows what's going to happen. He knows what's taking place. He knows what the end of this chapter is all about, even before we get there. And the Savior's intercession would prevent his faith from being totally destroyed and totally cast away, ceasing altogether. You see the word feel? It only happens three times or occurs three times in the New Testament. One of which is, I'm going to bring you to it, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 in the words of verse 12. And it's speaking about the Lord. It's a great contrast in, in view here. Contrast with the world. And it says, And as the vesture shall thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. That is, one day this old world will just be wrapped up like a cloth. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. It's contrasting the change of all things with the unchangeableness and the eternality of Christ. His years will not fail. His years will not pass away. His years will not cease. Oh, this world will cease. This world will pass away. You understand that? But Christ, that will not be the case. And so the sense of the meaning here is that Christ prayed for Peter that his faith would not completely pass away, that his faith would not cease altogether. His intercession would mean that he wouldn't apostatize. And while it is true that the faith of Peter was shaken and he didn't seem to take heed to this warning from the Lord for when he had opportunity to strengthen himself and strengthen the brethren in the garden and wait with the Lord in prayer, they all slept. Missed the opportunity. To be strengthened against the fiery darts of the devil. Wonder is that you today? You know, my prayer, I've already prayed it this morning, that our prayer meetings will be different as a result of our, of our gospel campaign. Yet while his courage failed him, and he was to deny the Lord, yet the power of Christ's intercession was seen in that he didn't completely fall away. He was overcome with fears. That led him, of course, to committing that great sin and denying the Lord by a little girl, a little maid around the fire. Yet the prayers of Christ prevailed for him. I have prayed for thee, Peter. There was not a total and a final ceasing of his faith. And the power of the intercession of Christ is realized in that Christ was always heard 
of God the Father. You look at John chapter 11. In the words of verse 42, the Savior says, And I knew that thou heardest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Christ's prayers were always heard of the Father. It follows that every prayer which he ever offered was answered. And he asked here for a specific thing. That thing was granted as he prayed that Peter's faith might not utterly fail. And dear child of God, when we consider the intercession of Christ, it's something that is not only particular in that he prays for each of his people, but it is powerful intercession. And it is perpetual intercession. The Lord Jesus Christ ever lives in the office of our great high priest. His work of redemption is finished. His work on the cross is finished. He said it's finished. Nothing can be added to that work. It cannot be undone. It's a finished work. But his intercessory work continues on. And we know that, of course, from Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Why? Seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. For those that he has redeemed. For those that he has purchased by blood on the cross of Calvary. He continues to make intercession for them. This is something that is sometimes forgotten. But Christ ever lives to intercede for His people. Romans chapter 8 brings it out as well. Great chapter, of course, for the child of God. Verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also maketh intercession for us. He prays for his people. We have an advocate with the Father. First John 2 and 1. He prays that we might have faith, and then he prays that it may not fail. For if we were left to ourselves, we would fail. But here we are reminded that we're kept by the power of God, and we're kept by the prayers of Christ. You just come over, I know I've taken you to some verses, but you just come over to his great example of prayer, John chapter 17. This is an example of the praying of Christ in glory. You look at verse 11. And I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou givest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. See how many times the word keep. Christ praying to the Father, his intercession is always heard. Look at verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. Child of God, whether you're 6 or 7 or 67 today, you remember Christ prays for you that you may be kept. Not lovely. And that your faith will not fail. Our adversary is great, yes. Like unto a roaring lion who seeks to snare us and prevent us from going on with God and even reaching glory one day if that were possible. 
But in Christ, we have a mighty advocate who sits at the right hand of God on the throne on high, who ever prays for us and daily pleads our cause and sees our every need. You see, Christ ever lives. And therefore our faith shall never fail or cease altogether. He ever appears before God on our behalf, doing for us what he did for Peter on this particular occasion. Child of God, that's the Savior that we have. One who says to us this morning, reminding us, I have prayed for thee. And although we may have all the opposition of hell and earth against us, yet the power of Christ's intercession is greater. Is that not all the incentive and encouragement that we need for us to pray for ourselves and to pray for others and to go on in the work, press on in the work that it lies to our hand and it gives us the assurance that he's keeping us. We're kept by the power of God. And Christ prays that we might be kept from the evil or the evil one. There's one little thought in closing, that is the instruction to strengthen. You see, the closing words of verse 32 imply that Peter would feel his faith would be tried and it would be weakened. For the Lord says, But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now understand that Christ uses the word converted. It doesn't mean that Peter wasn't saved. That's the word, way we would use a word. There's a converted soul. He's a saved soul. But the sense of the word is that when he was turned, when he had repented of his sin, and of course that's what conversion is, is a turning. The Lord was intimating that Peter would fail by temptation into sin. We would fall into it. We know that sin was a denying of the Lord. We know that a sin which made him look like an unconverted, made him look like an unregenerate man as he was warming himself around the fire. He's in the wrong company. Shouldn't have been there. Should have prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He would have been strengthened against that. But he's in the wrong company. Is that not a warning for us? But he failed. He fall, fell into that temptation to deny the Lord. And he just looks like an unregenerate man. I know nothing. I don't know that man. And so his recovery from that sin and repentance of this sin is termed by such a word, when thou art turned, when thou art converted. Peter was to be turned or recovered from his fall. And it would be by the grace of God. Those who have fallen into sin must be converted from it. Those who have turned aside must return. Those who have left their first love must do their first works. I wonder where do you find yourself even this morning? You notice then his task. For when he was turned, when he had repented of his sin, he had a work to do. The Lord says, strengthen thy brethren. He was to use his experience to warn and to strengthen those who were in danger of falling into similar sins. God was to bring good out of this evil, you see. In that Peter was given the task of strengthening his other brethren in the faith. I want you to turn back with me even to Psalm 51 because here you'll find a similar instance of this. We don't really need to spend time in the background. David had sinned greatly. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Tried to hide it. 
hide it, tried to hide it for nearly a year until Nathan pointed it out. Thou art the man. And here then is his great repentant prayer. Psalm 51. Verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto unto thee. Are you dear soul one who has fallen this morning? Maybe like Peter you're warned. But nevertheless you fell by temptation. And if you're truly see you then, we ask you, has the Lord finished with you? Did he finish with David, the psalmist? Did he finish with Peter? No, he didn't. For failure doesn't need to be final. He met with Peter on the seashore, John 21. He met with David. He's given the grace to pray in verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He had lost the joy. He didn't lose God's salvation, but he lost the joy of it. Restore unto me, Lord. And uphold me with thy free spirit. And you see the word restore, that's exactly the same word as verse 13, converted. Damn. Lord, if you do this for me, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. They'll be restored unto thee. They'll be returned to thee. He had a work to do. You who are backslidden, falling away from God, you need to be restored. Return to the Lord your first love, and in doing so, God can take you up. And God can use you again to cause others to return to him. Yeah. Because that's the instruction that he gave Peter. When thou art returned, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Peter, you'll have a work to do. The testimony of Peter was that he was to heed the command of the Lord. Oh, he remonstrates here. He, he, he doesn't believe that he would deny the Lord. He says, Lord, I'm ready both to go into prison and to death. He didn't know his own heart. The Lord, of course, knew all things. He knew what was going to happen. But now we see his testimony was that he did heed the command that he met with him, John 21. He's found among the disciples in the upper room upon that resurrection appearance of the Lord. He's not missing. He's there. It's Peter who's instrumental in the filling of the vacant seat left by Judas in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost, it's Peter who preached in the power of God's Spirit. 3,000 souls were added unto the church. A message which caused the disciples and the people of God to be strengthened. And you see what he did on the day of Pentecost, he's also to do in the two epistles that he pens under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The epistles of Peter are words full of strength for the the believer, for the child of God. 
They establish the saints in faith and holiness that they may not be drawn aside, that they may not feel when uh, the temptations come, that they may not fall from the steadfastness of their faith. Peter heard the words of the Lord, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And he was obedient to his calling. And so therefore, men and women, we need not think it a strange thing that it's Peter who writes those words, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, be sober, be vigilant. That's where I started this morning. Be aware. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Be sober, be vigilant. How do I know? Because I was there. And sadly, I failed. But now he's strengthening the brethren. Directed and guided by the Holy Spirit to write those words. I wonder, are you resisting the devil this morning? Is your faith in Christ this morning to the salvation of your soul? If it's not men and women, young person, it's time it was. It's time it was, it's time that you were converted to Christ. Cold of heart this morning, overcome by failure, the voice of the Lord is calling you back to your first love. What has got in? That's more important than your Savior and your Redeemer. What's got on the throne of your heart? That the Lord would say to you this morning, for you to come back. You see, there's still a work to be done. Our mission's nearly over. But I tell you, there's a work to be done Monday morning following. And there's a work to be done that you, restored soul, walking in fellowship again with God, can do for him. And I'll put it to you like this. I can't do it. Because it's only a work that you can do. When you come back. May he heed the warning this morning after blessings. Danger. Let's plead the blood. And that we might have that walk with God. And we do so in the assurance that Christ is praying for me. May the Lord bless his word in our hearts this morning. 512. Let's just stand as we sing a couple of the three of these verses. Give me the faith which can remove and sink the mountain to a plain. Give me the childlike praying love which longs to build thy house again. One, two, and five. We'll stand to sing it. One, two, and five of number 512.
Lord, we thank thee for thy word. We thank you, Lord, that we have one in our Saviour and our great High Priest who prayeth for us. We thank the Lord for the intercession of Christ. We recognize, Lord, like Peter, we don't fully realize how feeble and weak we are. And Lord, at any given time, we could deny the Lord just as he did. Lord, we pray that that would strengthen our faith. Give us the faith that will move the mountains into the plain. Enlarge our heart, Lord. Increase our zeal. For those around about us that are yet lost and on verge of hell. That we might, Lord, be a vessel. That we might be a means of pointing them to the great shepherd of a sheep. Lord, may that be our prayer. Bless us now as we part for a little season. Speak, Lord, especially to the unconverted. Speak, Lord, to the backslider this morning. Oh, God, we pray that they might again return to their first love. Bless us the rest of this Sabbath. Do us good. We pray in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.